Alex and Betsy Kirk to come up. Actually, guys, you can come right up to the center mic here. Um, for uh, some of us who were here back in, what, 2010, um, you know Alex and Betsy well. Uh, they are a precious couple. They were with us while Alex was going to seminary at Gordon-Conwell. Uh, they were part of our church, and Alex and Betsy led, um, led the Sunday small group that meets at the King's. And, um, and then they went on for Alex to get a, a, a doctorate over in England. And we've been staying connected to them over the past few years. And I just wanted them to share about what's been going on and where they're headed because uh, there's some wonderful things I think the Lord's doing in and through their lives, and we want to be a part of it. Uh, it's a privilege to partner with the Lord and what he's doing. So Alex and Betsy, you want to just come right to that mic and share a little bit so we can know how to support you guys. First of all, it's great to be back. Good to see so many of you again. Yeah. Just sweet to be back worshiping with uh, the church family here. And we're so grateful for the three years that we had here at King of Grace. We learned a ton, and our first daughter was born in this church, and we just have so many sweet memories of being here. So it's wonderful to be back. Uh, and Betsy is going to share a little bit about, he really wants the microphone here. <laughs> what do you have to say? <laughs> um, Betsy's going to share a little bit about where we've been and what we've been doing and what we're doing now. And then I'm going to share just briefly what we hope to do in the future. Yeah. I'm going to be really redundant and just repeat what he said and say what a joy it is to be back. We love this church. And it's just oh, such a blessing to see you all. Um, so where we've been... We left here to move to England, um, where Alex was studying. He was getting his Ph.D. And, new, well, they call it theology where we were, but it's really in the New Testament. He was writing about the Apostle Paul. It took him three years to do that, so we were there for three complete years. And during that time, um, the Lord really just met our needs. He gave us a lovely church family that have taken us on as their overseas partners, which is English speak for missionaries. Um, so that's a sending church for us that the Lord graciously provided, and they were a church home and a church family, and they helped fill some of the hole that was left in our hearts when we left you all. <laughs> and um, during that time, God gave us two more kids, Harriet, who's now two and a half, <laughs> and this is Hugh, he's ten months. Um, <laughs> So Alex was studying, and that's what I was doing. Um, it was great. <laughs> uh, which was a great joy. Um, and so then... She had the harder job. Yes. N- there's no doubt about that. Um, so um, next, we, uh, we've come back to the United States at the conclusion of his degree. He's, ne- he's submitted his dissertation, which means he's basically done. And there's a a church in Delaware. We know the senior pastor only um, and his wife, but they have offered us a mission house in which to live um, while we get ready to go. And there's an opportunity for Alex to assist in ministry at the church in different ways and really be mentored in ministry, which he's longing to do. So we have accepted that tremendously gracious gift from God, and we are... The house becomes available at the beginning of November, so we are floating for two months. We're currently visiting Alex's family. We'll visit my family. 
um, in Minnesota for a few weeks, and then we'll be moving out to Delaware, moving into the mission house, and I'll keep doing what I do, and <laughs> he will be um, working towards, he'll be supporting us with a, with a job that he has, and he'll be assisting in ministry at the church, we'll live in the house, and most importantly, in these years, we've really felt that the Lord has confirmed again and again the desire in our hearts to go to a faraway place and serve the Lord where we might be needed. The whole point of getting the PhD is so that Alex might be able to teach in a seminary and help train pastors um, in a kind of majority world context, and he'll tell you where we're hoping to go. But um, the Lord's confirmed that again and again. He's opened doors for us in unexpected ways and made it clear that we are to keep following him on this path. And so we will go to Delaware. We will apply with the mission agency. We will begin raising funds and getting ready. And Lord willing, within one to two years, we'll be on our way. And he'll tell you what we're hoping to do. Yes. We have been hoping to serve the Lord overseas in kind of a missions context for about 10 years or more. And so we've been slowly working toward this Um, And we've been praying for a long time that the Lord would direct our steps and show us where he would want us to go. And I think within the last couple years, he's been, you know, narrowing our vision and really focusing it now on the country of Indonesia. Um, Some of you may know Indonesia is actually the fourth most populous country in the entire world. Only China, India, and the United States have more people. Indonesia is fourth. And it's actually the country with the most Muslims in the entire world. Um, And about 90% of the country uh, is Muslim. But there's an evangelical church there that's growing really fast. About 50 years ago, there were uh, 1.3 million evangelical Christians. And now there are 13 million evangelical Christians. So it's grown tenfold over the last 50 years which is a tremendous blessing, but it puts a real strain on the leadership. I think I remember reading about 60% of the churches just don't have a pastor with formal training at all. So there's a real need for sound doctrine. Um, A lot of false teaching is threatening the church. And so um, what we would like to be involved in is in the training um, and teaching of pastors and also in... Um, the spread of the gospel to unreached people groups, especially Muslims in the country of Indonesia. So it's a wonderful work that God is already doing there, and we just want to be a part of what he's doing. Um, So as Betsy said, we're preparing to do that. I hope to teach at a seminary over there, and um, you could definitely join us in prayer. We feel a keen need that Um, The Lord loves for his people to pray and to respond to prayer. Um, So I I really believe that uh, our effectiveness in ministry is going to be directly related to um, the the prayers that we pray and that other people pray for us and for the work. So pray for the church in Indonesia, that it would grow not only numerically but also in maturity. Pray for us that the Lord would equip us with everything we need to uh, get ready to go. And there will be some kind of sign-up sheet somewhere. Um, If you want to receive...
prayer updates from us, just write down your name and email address, and we'd be happy to add you to the list. Thank you. Great. Thank you, guys. Great to hear from you. Thanks so much. Uh, one of the benefits of being in a place where there are seminary students and college students part of our church, uh, there's drawbacks in that we, our hearts knit to the students and then they go away. That's the hard part. The good part is we get to invest in somebody who goes on to serve the Lord. We get to be connected to what God's doing really throughout the earth. And so uh, we're excited about uh, the Kirks and what God has in store for them. And it's really our privilege to partner with them too as, as their plans develop. So I encourage you to sign up on that list and get that prayer letter. We'll, uh, we'll put it at the back after our worship time. Well, we are in Mark chapter 4. We're continuing our series in Mark called Amazed, where we're learning to be amazed by Jesus Christ. And as a result, uh, feeling afresh his call to believe and to follow him. Really, that's, that's the thrust of Mark, is to show us Christ uh, in the truth of who he is, that we would be amazed and we would believe in him and follow him. So we're continuing through this series. We're in chapter 4, and we're at a story that many of us are probably familiar with. If you've read your Bible for a little while, you would perhaps know this story about Jesus calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It might be a familiar story. Nevertheless, it's a really important story. It's a really powerful story, and it has profound implications for us. Even though we're not one of the 12 that were with him in the boat, uh, we are those who belong to Jesus and follow him, or maybe are interested in who he is. And the same truths that came to bear on those disciples during that evening come to bear on us as well. I believe that if we get the truth that's in Mark chapter 4, it will change our lives. If we get the truth that's in this passage will change our lives. So let's pray and ask God to do just that. Lord, we thank you for Mark 4. We thank you for this wonderful story, this wonderful account. And we ask you, Lord, help us to see, open our eyes to see you, Lord Jesus, to see ourselves as we really are and to see you as you really are. And Lord, in that, to be changed and to go from this place different than how we came in. We thank you, Lord, for your power and your word. And now we ask you to come, Holy Spirit, and to work this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can turn to Mark chapter 4. You can also follow it on the overhead. And I'll start in verse... 35, read about this wonderful story. Uh, Just some background, we have been going through the previous chapter, Jesus has been teaching pretty much all day, and then this story develops. It says, on that day when the evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, 
be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? God's word from Mark chapter 4. It had been a long day for Jesus ministering to the crowds by the sea. He had been in a boat. The crowds were so great in the boat, teaching from the boat, teaching through parables, teaching through these word pictures, these stories about the kingdom of God, about the truth, ultimately, of who he is and bringing the kingdom. He was explaining to his disciples privately what it meant. And at the end of that day, Jesus asked that they would cross the lake to go to the other side. They're going from the west side to the east side. That was a little bit different on the east side, a little more uh, Gentiles than Jewish people. And Jesus is probably wanting to go there for a couple of reasons. One is he wants to continue to bring the good news of who he is everywhere. And he wants to go to that area. And he wants also the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to know about the truth of who he is and the truth of the kingdom. Also, though, is probably uh, he wants to get away from the crowds. It was just, they were just amazing crowds. People were pressed together along the lake, and he wanted to get away from the crowds for a bit of a break. So he said, let's cross the lake. He gets in the boat, and he ends up in the stern of the boat. Now, I think we have a picture to show of what the boats would have looked like. A typical boat, it was about 26 feet long. It's a sizable boat, fits about 15 people, seven and a half feet wide, about four and a half feet deep, and there are likely platforms in the bow and stern area. And it says that Jesus went to the stern of the boat and he fell asleep on a pillow. And the pillow that they would normally have would be a ballast. It was a pillow full of sand. Uh, It could be anywhere from 50 to uh, like 150 pounds, and it would go in the stern. And so Jesus is likely in the stern, underneath the platform, on the pillow. So he's out of the way, and he falls asleep. Nothing wrong with that. But then, a storm comes up. In the boat are 15 disciples, and from four to seven, perhaps even more of them, are men who are experienced in handling these boats, and and they're fishermen, and they're experienced sailors. But the boats of the day were such that they really couldn't deal with the storms that would come up often on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 682 feet below sea level. So it's below sea level, it's low. And as a result, there are downdrafts that can come in and come onto the lake. Uh, also, there's two valleys on the north and the south that kind of serve as funnels for wind to come whipping across the lake. And there are storms on the Sea of Galilee with waves as high as seven feet. For a boat that's only four and a half feet deep and so forth, that you're in danger with large waves like that. So these guys are there, they're in the boat, the wind comes, there's, a, there's chop, there's waves there, and they're starting to splash over the side of the boat, fill the boat with water. These guys are in real danger. They're in real danger because with that sort of storm, with a boat like that, they could, they could sink the boat and all drown. And in the story, that's what's happening, and they're panicking, And at some point in the story, we don't know when, 
whether it was right away that the waves start breaking in or you know, a minute or maybe 30 minutes, it dawns on them Jesus is asleep in the stern. He's asleep, but he's also Jesus. He's somebody special. Now, they probably all don't fully understand all that he is, but at some point they recognize maybe we should ask Jesus. Maybe we should talk to Jesus. Maybe we should ask him for help. But did you notice what they say? When it comes time, whether it's a minute later, 30 minutes later, there's been a lot going on inside their minds and hearts as they face this peril of of the storm and possible drowning. And there's a lot more that they say than merely, help, Jesus. Do you see in your Bible what they say? They say to Jesus, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? That's a lot more than help, Jesus. They've taken the, the, the thought process of the situation pretty far down the line, haven't they? They're not just encountering the situation saying, help, that initial reaction. They're interpreting the situation, aren't they? They're starting to think, okay, this is a terrible storm. Next thought, the conclusion they make, that's an observation, right? Terrible storm, but they make a conclusion. They make an interpretation. What's that interpretation? We're perishing. Now, that's an assumption. There's a lot that goes into that. There's an interpretation. We're perishing. And then the next thing that's part of that is, okay, we're perishing. We're going to die. And then the next part is, Jesus doesn't care. He's asleep. He's asleep in the storm. We're perishing. He's asleep. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, you and I would never do that sort of thing, right? If we were in trouble... We would just say, Jesus, help me. I know you can help. Right? We would never start to draw conclusions about what is going to happen in that situation and what God thinks about us, would we? No. We do that all the time, don't we? That's how we deal with life. We deal with life with, with this interpretation that goes on. We are always looking for deeper meaning. We're, all, we're not just reacting to situations. We always take it a step further. We start to interpret it. What does this mean? And often we go to, what does this mean about God and me? There's a lot that goes into our understanding of dangerous situations. We are inherently religious people. We interpret. We think in terms of, of the deeper spiritual meaning. And that's by God's design. He's made us like that. That's evidence, I think, that, that God exists. The fact that we need God, to explain things. We need to know this deeper meaning. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so when we deal with situations like this, we, we think these things. We go through these processes of, of evaluating and thinking more deeply. What does this mean? What's going on? I, I feel awful. And what about God? Where is God in, in this? And Paul Tripp, uh, Pastor Paul Tripp and Paul Tripp, he came up with this thing called uh, an equation. He didn't give it a name, but we'll call it the Tripp equation. I think it's a helpful thing. If you don't like math and equations, just you can just zone out right now. Um, but I think it's a helpful equation. And the equation goes this way. I think we have it to show situation plus self plus God, and he says equals fear. But I think situation plus self plus God equals our status. So how we feel, how we experience things, what we think. It's the situation Add ourselves and add God into that equation. How does that work? Well, a situation like this terrible storm for the disciples. That's a negative situation, right? It's a negative 
Uh, let's say you could have a scale from negative 1,000 to plus 1,000. Like favorable is th plus 1,000, bad's negative 1,000. This would be like a, maybe a negative 950. And I say that because like the worst scenario, there's all, there are worse scenarios, right? Like being thrown into a blazing furnace in, in Scripture, right? There's worse things than dealing with a storm. Anyhow, 950, negative 950. Then the next step is ourself and, our, and God. What do we feel about our ability to somehow bring a solution? Well, the disciples probably thought, oh, I've got about a 50 to add here. You know, I can row, and I can do some things, but I, I mean, this storm is overwhelming. I have little to contribute. Then the next part of the equation is kind of where the rub is. The disciples are there with the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, in the stern of the boat. Now he's asleep. And in their mind, Jesus is really not bigger than the storm, is he? He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, they're perishing. They say, we're perishing. We're, we're going to die. That's the conclusion here. And you don't care. You're asleep. You don't care. So the result for them is panic, right? God's not big enough. The situation's too big for themselves. The result is panic. And I think it helps describe what situations can be like for us. So let's just think about it in terms of your own experience and your own life. What are the sort of situations that for you are, are overwhelming? What would you give them? How do you tend to insert yourself and God in that? Do you find yourself encountering dangers and troubles and panicking? Experiencing panic attacks or anxiety or anger or sadness? Have you ever experienced experience those things? I think we all have. And we are part of that equation, and we're a lot like the disciples. We encounter a dangerous situation, and we forget that God's in the boat, and that he cares, and it produces this panic or anger. Some of us naturally go towards depression or sadness. Others go to anger and frustration, whatever it might be. That's what's going on often in our lives. We're a lot like the disciples. We can look at the disciples and think, you know, these guys are like the three stooges. I mean, they just don't get it. They're just kind of bumbling and missing who Jesus is, doing these stupid things. But you know what? They're there in Scripture not to be comic relief, though they are at times. They're there in Scripture because they're just like you and me. And they deal with who Jesus is and life very like you and I do. In case you're not convinced, let me tell you a story about myself. I've told the story before, but I think it's worth repeating because uh, it demonstrates how much like the disciples I am and actually probably how much stupider than the disciples I might be. Uh, some years ago, I was going to grad school, finishing up a graduate degree at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And, uh, and the campus is in Baltimore. And Baltimore at that time was like the second most violent city in the country. And there had been some muggings on campus or just off campus going on. And in my car... Uh, the office I worked in, the lab I worked in, was probably about a half mile from the parking lot where I parked. And you had to walk through some wooded area, and then you had to walk through this big parking lot that, I mean, that people could hide in and stuff. So, so I, my thought process was, wow, you know, I don't want to get mugged. I don't want to get mugged. I mean, I don't mind losing my wallet, but I don't want to lose my life. And then, you know, 
my sort of thinking often goes like this. If I lose my life, then, then my wife will be a widow, and I don't have enough health insurance, so she's going to have to be on the streets homeless with my kids, and my kids are going to have to beg for money. And, I, and just this whole scenario in my mind, what's going to happen as a result of getting mugged tonight as I go to my car? Awful things will happen. I'll die, and my kids and my family will suffer. And so you would think at that point that my next step would be, Lord, help me. Protect me as I go to my car or something, or give me wisdom what to do. You would think, right? But that's not what I did. I, I started to think, I'm going to come up with a plan. God wasn't in my plan. My plan was, I know what I'll do, because uh, I had to work late that night. I know what I'll do. I'm going to go out of my office, and I'm going to go in the woods and kind of like, kind of like sneak through the path, and I don't, you know, go from tree to tree, and, you know, look and listen, make sure there's nobody and stuff, and and though I don't think I quite did the tree-to-tree thing, but I was, you know, I walked really carefully with anyone around. I made it through the wooded area, and then I came to the parking lot. Um, and my plan was, come to the parking lot, and now I'm exposed, right? I'm out in the open. They're going to see, and all these 50 muggers are going to converge on me in the parking lot. So I'm thinking, okay, what I got to do once I break the woods, I got I to make it to my car quick. And then I'm still not safe, right? Because once I'm in the car, I mean, they could, they could do something to me. You know, break the windows, come in and stuff. So I thought, what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump in the car, uh, turn the ignition, and back out and do like a Jason Bourne, like 360 and pull out of the parking lot. It's all in my mind. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm going I'm to get home safe. And so I come to the parking lot, and I, and I make a dash for it. I get in the car, you know, open it up when we get in. I turn the ignition. I put the pedal to the floor, back up, um, get out of there. And I didn't plan on one thing the light pole that was behind me. So I whacked into the light pole at full acceleration. The, the bat, my seat bent over, uh, and the car stalled. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm not deterred. The car stalled. I'm going to start back up and get out of there. So I go to start, and it's like, and, you know, like, oh, no. I found out later that I knocked the fuel pump mounts off of the uh, the, the fuel pump off its mounts, and that's why the car didn't have any gas. And so you can imagine what happened next. I'm, I'm here in the car. I can't get out of the parking lot and drive through the massive muggers that are attacking me. You know, I'm, 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 they're going to converge, and I'm going to die. No one came to the parking lot, actually. I was there for like an hour. The next one who came actually was my friend who I called to come and get me, and then the next person after that was the tow truck driver. Nothing ever happened except that I ruined my car um, and looked like an idiot, and now I have a story to tell you. (laughs) So I hope you're convinced that I'm just like the disciples, and worse. You're probably convinced that I'm worse than the disciples. But how about for you? What are the storms in your life that make you look perhaps like the disciples? What are the things in life that overwhelm you? that cause you to maybe run to your own resources and cause you to panic like I did or cause you to be angry or frustrated? What are those things? There's lots of storms that come in life. Fear of other people, fear of man, we call it. Is that a storm for you? Do you get paralyzed when you're around other people? Do you live your life thinking, what are they going to think? Do you pick your wardrobe, pick your friends, pick even your persona based on what others going to think. I would say to you, that's your storm, what others think. Maybe finances are your storm, lack of finances. Just whenever you deal with that situation, you get full of panic or anxiety or 
or anger. Maybe it's failure. Maybe it's your own failure. Maybe it's the failure of others around you. What is your storm? Let us recognize we have storms, just like the disciples. And too often, too often, we approach them just like they did. We panic and we forget. God himself is there with us, and he's good. They are overwhelmed by this storm, and Jesus is asleep in the storm. He's asleep there in the stern, and, and that's unusual, okay? Seven-foot waves or so, he's asleep. I don't think he's just so tired from that day of speaking that he's just worn out. He's just comatose on the pillow. There's more going on here. There's more in the story. I think he planned this. I think God planned this. God planned, he intended to sleep deeply. And he did sleep deeply. The, the indication is, is that they, they wake him and then he is awoken. The idea is that it's just he's not on a light sleep. He's like you know, deep, deep sleep. He wakes up. That's on purpose. He's asleep in a storm. And there's one other place in Scripture where there's a man on a boat asleep in a storm. Anyone know? Jonah, right? Good. Jonah. This story here in Mark 4 is pointing in many ways to the story of Jonah. And Jonah is a picture, ultimately, of Christ. Do you know the story of Jonah? Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was called to go to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were brutal enemies of the Jews. They were brutal. They had devastated northern Israel. They, they, were, they were ones that just introduced all sorts of horrible things in warfare. They were brutal. And God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach repentance, unless I judge, lest I judge them. And Jonah goes the other way. He runs the other way. Why did Jonah run the other way? Jonah actually knew who God was. Jonah actually had bad qualities about him, but one quality that was good about Jonah, he believed God. And he knew that God was mighty, and he knew that God was merciful. And he hated the Assyrians. And he did not want to go to Nineveh and preach repentance because he knew if he did that, God would grant them repentance, and he would stay his hand. And Jonah did not want that to happen. He wanted judgment on the Assyrians. So he runs the other way. He runs away. He gets in a boat. He goes to sleep in probably the stern or somewhere down in the boat in a storm. The storm rages, and finally they wake him up, and they end up casting Jonah in the sea because the storm was from God's hand. They're reluctant to do it, but Jonah says, do it. They cast him into the sea, and immediately there is a calm on the sea, even perhaps a great calm on the sea, just like our story. Jesus is like Jonah and falling asleep on the boat, but there's a storm that's not just a physical storm that he comes to quiet, and certainly in this storm, he is the one himself who commands the wind and the sea and brings the calm that we saw in Jonah. Now it is God as God the Son, commanding the wind and the sea to come, just like God commanded in Jonah. But this also points to a different sort of storm. And, and this is an important point not to miss. The worst storm for the disciples wasn't the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the worst storm for you is not getting mugged in a parking lot 
or finances, fear of man or failure, those are not the worst storm. There's a storm brewing in all our lives caused by what the Bible calls our sin. Our sin. Sin is our rebellion against God. It's our unbelief. It's our rebellion. It's a turning away from God. And the reality is that God is so amazingly good and holy and perfect and kind and just that sin against him is an awful and heinous offense without excuse. And he's holy. He's perfect. We can't even really approach him in all his holiness. His, he is so perfect and glorious in who he is. We can't even come close to him. He's so perfect. And yet we're sinners. We are really, in, in light of who God is, we are vile. Now, there's good things about us. Don't get me wrong. We're made in the image of God, and I could talk about that. But, but compared to God and his holiness, we are vile. We've rebelled against him. So many of our thoughts and intentions all the day are for sin and self and not God and not others. We hate God. We hate one another. We rebel. We're sinners. And there's a storm in our lives. It's a storm of the holy justice, the wrath of God. That's a deserved storm. We've created the storm in our sin. And that storm that is raging is far worse than any other storm you'll face. Far worse, far more dangerous. Because this storm, if, it has, if the results of this storm have their way, the results will last forever and ever. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The results of this storm and the judgment of God is to be separate from him forever. Far worse than any other storm's results. Here's the good news in the rest of the story. The story of Jonah is Jonah gets thrown into the sea. And the sea is calmed. Jesus gets thrown in the sea of God's wrath and calms the storm for all those who would trust him. John chapter four, 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a word we don't see often. Propitiation is an offering to appease wrath. It's an offering made against someone offended and wrathful. And in God's case, his wrath is holy, just wrath. It's not petty, vengeful wrath. It's good justice. And this is love that the Father himself, the one who is there in his justice and in his wrath, in his love, he sent the Son. And the Son and he, and the power of the Spirit, worked together that the Son would come. He sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The intention was for Jesus to be thrown into that raging storm to bring calm and peace for you. So that worst of storms would be at peace. And through faith in Christ, just the simple act of turning from sin and self and placing faith, not in yourself, but in Christ. Through that, all the benefits of his life are yours. There's peace with God, a peace that's unending. 
There's more to this story than just calming a storm, as wonderful as that is. It points to Jesus and the storm, ultimate storm that he comes to come. And it's interesting that he's there in the stern of the boat and his disciples don't know all this. They don't understand all this. And in some ways, it makes sense for them to, in their ignorance, to relate to Jesus that way. But I think of myself, I do the same thing, and yet I know the rest of the story. I know that he's not asleep in the storm because he's uncaring or not active. I know the rest of the story that he went to the cross to die for me and for us, for all who would believe. I know that he loves me that much, that he would do that, and he offered himself, and yet I still do the same thing. I still say, Jesus, do you not care that I am perishing? I thought grieves my heart. But I'm also so glad that he died for that sin too. He loves me and he loves us. He's patient. And really this story is calling us to put our faith in Christ. This story is calling us to place our faith in him as the one who is Lord over the wind and the seas and the one who brings true peace and true calm to the worst storm. To to be transformed and changed as we understand that. So when we face the difficulties in life, we would be different. We would understand that, that if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also take care of all things? If he already took care of the storm, if he's already for me and he's with me and has promised he'll never leave me nor forsake me, then he can take care of this other stuff. He can take care of worries about getting mugged in the parking lot. He can take care of fear of man, finances or failures. He can take care of it all. And that's, that's the intent here. And take care of it he did in the story. Jesus wakes up and speaks to the wind. He commands the wind. He commands the storm as the master of all. He commands the language he uses is the sort of language that a master would call a servant to, to, to obey. And he is the master of all. He speaks to the sea. He speaks to the wind. And there's calm. And it's not just kind of calm. It's not like things just kind of quiet down and there's still like some waves here and, and squalls blowing here and there. No, it's a great calm. It's, it's total silence. And then he turns to his disciples, having rebuked the wind, to rebuke them. And he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It could also be worded this way, why are you so cowardly? The word can be translated cowardly. Why are you so cowardly? Have you still no faith? Cowardice is failing to do the right thing out of fear, failing to act and do the right thing out of fear. An overdeveloped sense of self or so forth, it's failing to do the right thing out of fear. And Jesus says, why are you so cowardly? Have you still no faith? They had lost sight of Jesus, and it 
produced cowardice. It produced in them this panic and this fear and not doing the right thing. And so Jesus calms the storm and then there's a result. Their cowardice turns into godly fear. Their cowardice turns into godly fear. It says, it says in the passage that they feared as a result. They said they were filled with great fear. Uh, more literally, it says they, they feared with great fear. that They were really afraid at this point. They realized they had something more on their hands than just a storm. This isn't just a storm. That's a scary prospect. We've got the master, the Lord of all storms, the one who speaks to the wind and the sea in our boat with us. There was a realization that came over them that changed their perspective. And in the equation, the the trip equation, all of a sudden they recognize, yeah, the storm's a negative 950, and yeah, we're only a 50, but no longer is Jesus just a 100. What they have in the boat with them is an infinity. They have the Lord of all things in the boat with them, and it changed their perspective. They went from cowardice towards the storm to fear of Jesus. That's a good thing. Fear of God is a good thing, and it produces quite a different experience than fear of situations because God is good and he's mighty he's powerful and he's for us that switches it's it's a fear but it's a fear in a sense how a young child would relate to a parent I thought about when uh, our kids were little um, we taught them to swim and they could be at times really afraid of the water but they were at that age where they you know their view of their dad was dad's just this big guy that can do anything, you know. And, and so what I would do is to get, help them get over the fear of the water, I would put them on my back and give them rides in the water. I would swim, and they'd be on my back, and they loved that. And I think it was because they knew their dad was strong, at least in their eyes, strong and big and able. And their fear of their dad, their respect and, and understanding of their dad, overcame their fear of the water. That's God's intent in this story for us. That knowing who he is and knowing who Jesus is and having a fear of him, it would overcome our fear of situations. As the band comes up and we close this morning, let me ask again about your own circumstances. What are the things that are difficult for you What are the situations that overwhelm you? How have you related to those, even up till today? Has there been panic and fear and so forth? This story in Mark 4 is for you. This story is for you that you would be transformed in how you deal with things, that you would understand that Jesus is there for you. If you are a believer, he is with you. He's promised he'll never abandon you never forsake you. And he is mighty and he does care. You may feel like you're perishing, but that's not the case. He's already taken care of ultimate perishing in his death and resurrection for you. He's there with you. He's mighty. He's glorious. He's in control of all things. He's promised to use all things for your good. So look to him this morning. And I would encourage you too, if you're not in a church, not in a small group, get in a small group. Because one of the things that we do simply in small groups is just to remind each other, he's in the boat with us. And he's Lord of all.
Let's consider that as we close this morning with our hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus.